Welcome to the Holistic Accountant Podcast. My name is Stuart Weems. And I'm Ian Abraham. The aim of this podcast is to demonstrate to you how valuable business and tax advice is when we adopt a holistic approach. That is, all business and tax advice your holistic accountant gives you must be aimed at helping you achieve your business and lifestyle goals. Of course, saving tax is important, but at the end of the day, it's about achieving your lifestyle goals. In this episode, which is a perfect segue, we're going to talk about how to use your business to meet your lifestyle goals. Now, before we talk about that, let's sort of revisit around why people actually decide to start their own business. And I reckon there's, Mina, there's probably three main reasons that kind of jump out at me. The first one is that they want to be their own boss. They don't want people telling them how to do something, that they've advanced their career and knowledge and experience to such an extent that they now they want to put their own stamp on it, that they've they've developed their own sort of ways of, of practicing or um, uh, delivering a product or service or whatever it might be, and, and they want to do it their way. And we, we find that some common, say, say with medicos and dentists and so forth, you know, that they learn how to practice, they do their sort of apprenticeship, if you like, and then they want to um, deal with patients in their own way. Uh, the second reason is they might have a, a particular passion or interest for a product, service or industry. So that, that could be, you know, where people develop a product or service that might be quite unique to fulfill a need that they are quite passionate about. Or it could be in an industry that they've got some sort of passion. But passion uh, can be a big driver. And the third one could be a direct or better reward. You know, in business, you eat what you kill. Um, and so if you have a good year, you have a good year. And when you have a bad year, you have a terrible year. So, um, And that de- direct reward can be motivating for some people. So, of course, it could be a combination of all three of those factors. Um, but I think we, it's good to clarify why we start our own business because we're going to talk about you know how you can use your business and run your business uh, to achieve your lifestyle goals. But if you're not really doing or conducting your business with a, a pure profit motive. And it's not all about money, of course. You want to do work that you're proud of. Um, uh, but you need to take that in context. And the risk is that sometimes we see people toil away at their business for decades. Uh, and when they make profit, they kind of reinvest it into their business. Um, and then they hope that their business value uh, improves, but it, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and notwithstanding that, their personal wealth doesn't make any advancement either because they're really just um, earning enough to put food on the table. Uh, and then after a couple of decades, you know, the turnaround, they've really created no personal wealth as a result. And so I think it's really important to you know, step back and, and ask yourself, why did I get into business? Uh, at the end of the day, is it important this helps me achieve my uh, lifestyle goals? And at the end of the day, I think if you're going to put in a lot of hard work, blood, sweat and tears, you know, it's reasonable uh, to expect that you're going to be fairly rewarded for that. So how can we do that, Mina? So there's two approaches to achieving this. So firstly, you could build a business to sell. So that is you put all your time and money into improving its value and its sellability. This might mean you forego earnings in return for hopefully a large sale value or a big payday. Of course, this is high risk. The further in the future the sale value, the higher the risk it is. So you could potentially waste years and years and not earn anything. Secondly, you you could use the business as a cash cow. So it gives you a set amount each month for you to invest. So you invest it in a way that is protected and not linked to your business. That that way, if your business blows up one day, think about sort of uh, taxi licenses and blockbuster video, for example, you'll have a nest egg to fall back on. 
So it is our view, wherever possible, that the second option is the lowest risk and highest reward option. That's right, Mina. Shaving a little bit of profit off the top every year, month or week uh, and investing in a way that, as Mina said, is not linked to your business uh, is, a, is a good way to almost accidentally build some, some personal wealth over the time. And uh, as I said at, at the beginning, if you toil away for a couple of decades, you know, at least you've got this, uh, this nest egg working uh, uh, along behind the scenes uh, in addition to your business. So th- there's really three ways that we might be able to do that. I mean, of course, it really depends on you know, the individual circumstances of the, the client. But um, in terms of the, there's three probably uh, dominant avenues uh, to achieve that. The first one is to have a a corporate beneficiary, which is really a a company that's a beneficiary of your family trust. Um, And essentially all your business income ends up in your family trust. You might distribute some to yourself and your spouse and, you know, maybe some other adult beneficiaries, etc. But then also you can distribute uh, some to a that company, and you can use that as your personal investment company. Of course, it's not non-trading, uh, but the benefit is that the tax rate's capped at thirty percent. So you're not going to really pay any more, at least not much more tax uh, by putting money in there. But then you can invest it uh, in a way that's that's going to be protected from your business. The second is to use a family trust. Uh, and we might do that uh, particularly when buying property, for example, and we have some some gearing, some borrowings. Uh, and of course, when you first initially purchase a, a residential property, uh, the rent typically isn't enough to pay for all its expenses. Uh, and so we can distribute um, profit or business income into that family trust to soak up those losses, uh, which is often called negative gearing. Uh, so we can get that negative gearing benefit, but have it in a, a really tax-effective environment that's going to give us effective effectiveness in the future. Uh, And the third option is super. Um, It's very tax effective because obviously we can claim a tax deduction for making a contribution into super. You don't have have to have a self-managed super fund. I mean, a lot of accountants will suggest it, but um, particularly self-employed when they first start out, they don't typically have large super balances or maybe even 10 years into their business, they don't have large super balances because they haven't been contributing. So if you don't have a lot of super, you know, self-managed super funds, probably not the way to go. Uh, There's more cost-effective ways to do that. Um, Maybe an an industry super fund, uh, pick a good one because they can range from very good to very bad or even a wrap style product that gives you the sort of flexibility that a a self-managed super fund uh, provides, but at a much lower cost. Uh, the point being, super is very tax effective in terms of making the contribution uh, and then equally tax effective in terms of accumulating wealth. But they're the sort of three, um, a corporate beneficiary, family trust or super. The key here, Stuart, is to make sure your business's cash flow is strong and predictable. So what that means is we need to make long-term plans. So for example, if you invest $2,000 per month from your business profits, this allows you to have a nest back, a ne- sorry, a nest egg to fall back on. So it's the consistency that is most important because it helps us as your advisors plan. So we'd rather see a client invest, for example, $1,000 per month regularly than say 100,000 every five years. So the best thing to do is to invest first and then spend what's left over. Put yourself on a forced savings plan. So if you can get borrowings for this, it would even be better because it locks you into a commitment whilst, of course, providing some tax savings. If you don't have the surplus cash flow, then you have to take a hard look at your business's performance. We recently helped a marketing business assess their profitability 
recently and we worked out that they were working for only $10 per hour. That's almost half the minimum wage. We worked with them to assess client profitability and we were able to identify the clients that they were losing money on. So they were spending too much time trying to please these clients whilst charging a minimal fees to retain the business. So what we recommended was to sack those clients and instead of trying to compete on price is to focus on the clients that they, were, they had the highest margin on and that they didn't need to, to lower their service standards for. That's right, Mina. So if you're running a business and it doesn't yet afford you the ability to make regular investments like we're talking about, then to my mind, that would be my number one goal is to sort of get it there. And the best advice I've had over the years, Mina, is to really um, develop an organizational chart for your business. Because as a business owner, you're probably doing a few roles. You know, you're doing the marketing, you're doing the CFO, um, you're probably doing sales and um, operations, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it's the 80-20 rule. 80% of what we do, we could delegate to someone else and pay them uh, substantially less than what we're otherwise earning uh, and then focus our time on more higher level or higher value activities, so develop the organizational chart, occupy each role, and then your role is to make yourself redundant, your job that is, and uh, and then employ people. Uh, you know, there's no point you doing a task that you could pay someone else $20 an hour to do. You're better off to focus your time and energy on tasks that are going to generate $500 or $1,000 return per hour, um, which could be strategy or marketing or relationship building or those sorts of things, not necessarily sitting in front of zero and doing the bookkeeping, for example. Now, there's going to be time where you need to do that because your business is growing, but it's important to have the discipline to um, sort of promote yourself out of those roles and replace yourself. You may as well pay someone the $10 or $20 an hour to do that work rather than you doing it yourself. So once you've achieved that, hopefully what that means then is you'll then, you've then got a, a regular amount to invest uh, and your accountant can help you do that. Um, but let's talk about the bad news, Mina. Let's talk about some common mistakes that we see people make in this regard. The first is choosing a wrong accountant because your accountant can either help or hinder your ability to build your nest egg. Borrowing, for example, is a great way to build wealth, particularly in a low interest rate environment. So, for example, many of our clients borrow to invest in residential property. So, maximizing your borrowing capacity will help maximize the amount you have to invest and leverage your income as much as possible. A good holistic accountant will understand how the banks look at a particular borrower. At a particular borrower. They will be able to structure the tax return accordingly. For example, we work closely with our credit uh, team here in the office to ensure what we do tax-wise doesn't affect our clients' overall wealth plans. Because there's no point in saving every last dollar in tax if it wipes out your borrowing, compa- borrowing capacity in total. Because that will cost you a lot more in opportunity cost. Another common mistake is super meaner. I mean, most people in that are self-employed uh, typically ignore super. Um, and mostly because they're sceptical about it. You know, they're worried that the government sort of can take control of it. Uh, they're worried that it's locked away until they're 60 because they can't access it until they retire um, and those sorts of concerns. And I, I guess there's, you know, the, the um, government has always played around with the super rules, but uh, one thing has remained consistent throughout time is that it's always been concessionally taxed. There's always a incentive for making contributions into super both from an income tax perspective, but also from a, a future 
um, earnings perspective on those investments as well. So um, employees, however, uh, obviously distinct from self-employed people, uh, are forced to contribute nearly 10% of their income, or soon it will be 10% of their income each year. So it's almost like a forced savings plan for employees. Obviously, self-employed people um, don't benefit from that um, situation. And so I think that um, ignoring super in totality doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, You don't necessarily need to max out your super contributions. So uh, everyone can contribute up to $25,000 a year and claim a a personal income tax or business income tax deduction for doing so. Um, so I'm not suggesting you need to contribute 25000 a year, but contributing zero is probably not the right answer either. Um, it, yes, it's they will, the government will play around with it. Um, one of the other concerns that people have is the, the change in preservation age. At the moment, we can access super once we turn 60 uh, and we're retired, of course. Uh, you know, maybe they're going to push that out. I mean, the age pension doesn't kick in until age 67. So a lot of people have been talking, well, maybe super will become 67 just to align it with the age pension. Um, that's quite possible. But, but it, I don't think if you're in your 30s, 40s, or and particularly 50s today, it's not something you need to worry about. They will give people plenty of notice. They won't change that overnight. Um, they might say, for example, people born after 2010, for example, uh, their super's now um, uh, locked away until 67. So it's not going to impact people that are born in the, the 80s, 90s, 70s, whenever. Um, the point is, it's very tax effective. It's a great kind of forced savings mechanism. It forces you to take a long-term view as well, which is good from an investment perspective, and it provides you some immediate uh, income tax benefits. Another way to build wealth is to invest uh, in commercial property. So particularly in owner-occupied property, that is uh, properties that you use for your business. But you need to make sure it's a good investment. Specialised properties aren't always a good a good investment. You need to ensure the property is in a good location uh, with multiple uses with a good rental yield. Um, it also makes sense to invest in commercial property in if it's going to be your business premises if you're going to have to spend a lot of money on the fit out. So think about a dentist for example who has to spend a lot of money on a fit out, equipment and so forth. They will typically like to purchase their commercial property that they operate out of. Don't talk yourself into it. Not all commercial properties make good investments. So, Mina, in summary, it's great to aim for a big uh, sale price one day, you know, build a business and sell it for millions of dollars. Uh, And, of course, you should do that if that's your goal. Um, But in the meantime, it makes a lot of sense to, as I said, shave a little bit of profit off each year and and invest it. Obviously, the more that you do that, the more money you invest each year, the the bigger the asset pool you're going to grow. Of course, if you invest it well, um, uh, but something is better than nothing. So even starting with just a few thousand dollars uh, will make a difference in the long run. Uh, make sure your business structure works effectively, as we talked about that in episode one. Um, a, a good business structure is going to allow you to invest uh, your business profit without hopefully paying any more tax for doing so, uh, but making sure you're investing in a tax-effective environment. As Mina said, consider borrowing capacity. You know, you might uh, decide to sort of maximise your borrowing capacity for one or two years uh, to improve your gearing to buy a couple of investment properties, for example. Uh, And doing so in those two years might um, mean you pay a little bit more tax than you otherwise could have, uh, but at least it gets you into that market. Uh, Don't ignore super. I mean, super is very, very tax effective. Sure, it's locked away. 
Um, I think something's better than nothing with super, it seems to my mind. Uh, unless you're um, you know, 30 or, or 40 years away from retirement, uh, it would seem silly to ignore it. Uh, but overall, your holistic accountant's job is to help you achieve your lifestyle goals. Uh, and part of that is obviously making sure that your business is operating effectively, that you're paying as little tax as necessary, um, but then also that you're putting that profit to, to good work. So this episode is a great segue into ep- the next episode, episode three. We're going to talk about what your accountant should be working on uh, rather than just punching out tax returns and BAS statements. Uh, what are some of the high value stuff that you can get your accountant working on to help you achieve uh, better outcomes? So thanks very much for listening. This is the second episode in the first series. Um, if you like the podcast, please leave a review or rating wherever you listen. Uh, and of course, if you know any uh, friends, family or colleagues that would enjoy listening to this content, please share because if there's enough interest in the podcast, uh, it will uh, encourage us to do a second season uh, and that is both a threat and a promise. Uh, thanks a lot, Mina. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks, guys. See you later.